This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 330. Every single coach that I talked to in this book had one of those moments where they'd either been fired or had a much safer alternative, a safer path in life they could have taken. They just said, you know what, I'm, I can't. I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to push through this. And ultimately, every single one of those coaches won something great. Hello once again, and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. My name is Jeff, and this is the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth. Through this podcast, I'll not only help you narrow your reading list, but bring you key insights and valuable ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. You and I are about to be joined by Craig Custance, author of the book Behind the Bench, Inside the Minds of Hockey's Greatest Coaches. I'll be asking Craig to share what he's learned from these coaches about things like goal setting, getting outside your comfort zone, plus passion, humility, conflict, and lots, lots more. Well, in the coming weeks, I have the distinct privilege of speaking at events as close as Nashville, where I currently live, and as far away as Australia, all without leaving the microphone I'm sitting behind right now. Yeah, it's a bit of a different world we live in today, and a lot of events, in-person events, have gone virtual. If I can help you with your virtual or eventual in-person event, I'd love to hear from you. I've spent the last seven or so months working on a signature talk designed to help event attendees realize their biggest dreams and highest priorities. And a lot of what I present in that talk is a culmination of the interviews I've conducted over the last seven years. What are some of the things that all of these successful people have in common? Well, I've discovered that nearly all of them do these five things. And I share those things in that signature talk. If I can help your event attendees realize their biggest dreams and highest priorities, or you have another topic in mind you think I might be a good fit for, you can reach out to me directly, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Craig Custance is a journalist who spent the last decade and a half covering the NHL as a national hockey writer, including six years with ESPN.com and ESPN the magazine. He left ESPN to join The Athletic, a San Francisco-based sports media startup. He is currently the NHL U.S. Editor-in-Chief and Group Managing Editor for Detroit, Chicago, and Florida at The Athletic. Before his time at ESPN, he wrote for the Sporting News and spent 10 years with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Craig is here today to share what he's learned about leadership from some of the sporting world's best minds. It's a topic he covers extensively in his book, Behind the Bench, Inside the Minds of Hockey's Greatest Coaches. Craig, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Jeff. I am so excited as a longtime listener to this podcast to be sharing anything I can with your with your listeners about leadership and, and these coaches. It was a Fun process, and I'm glad to be here. Well, I appreciate those kind words. Uh, Craig is proof positive that uh, when you follow me on Twitter and you say nice things about the show, you just may end up on the show. <laughs> if I, I figure I could wear you down enough with comments on Twitter. Oh, it's it's great. I, I love sharing your podcast because it's an easy one for people to consume, and and it, you know they understand it right away the concept, and you know people thank me, so I uh, I'm happy to share it. Mm. 
as you hear the title of Craig's book, you may think, well, this is a this is a leadership podcast. This is a, a business podcast. Where does sports fit into that? Well, obviously, you, you can't teach leadership without at least a handful of sports analogies along the way. And Craig, you say in the epilogue of the book that it's impossible to sit with leaders like these coaches and not walk away changed or mm. at least inspired. And that's really kind of what I want to dig into some of how, how this impacted you, just the process of writing it, what you learned along the way. First, I want to ask, though, where did the idea for the book come from? And did you ever have any doubts as to whether all these coaches would agree to, to come together and let you interview them for this book? Yeah, yes. Uh, to, to answer the second question first, um, the idea came from, I remember I was in Columbus, Ohio, and was in a scrum of uh, reporters listening to a coach at the time, Ken Hitchcock was coaching the Columbus Blue Jackets. And the microphones were off, the cameras were off, and Ken was just kind of chatting about hockey and sharing some of his knowledge. And, and it, this went on for uh, 20 minutes, half hour, just chatting. Mm. And it, I, I felt like I learned more about the sport, more about motivating people, whatever the topic was. Like, I was like, holy cow, like that, <laughs> that was way more informative than the canned answers that we always get <laughs> when the cameras are on, right? And, and so I remember turning to a reporter next to me, a guy named Aaron Portsline. And I'm like, wow, that was great. Uh, does he always do that? And he said, not only that, occasionally he'll, you know, especially in a new market like Columbus at the time was was new to hockey. Uh, he said he'll bring reporters in the back and they'll sit down and watch film together and he'll just share what he's seeing. And I was just like, oh, man, I, like I have to do that with these coaches like that. Mm -hmm. That kind of planted the seed. And I'm like, OK, what's what's a vehicle in which I can convince the coaches to spend the proper time doing that? And this was years later. I'm like, OK, as, I think a book would do it. Like, if I could convince a bunch of coaches to sit down, <laughs> watch you know, their most important game of their career with them in the, in the comfort of their living room or their office, then we can have kind of the space to stretch out, you know, tell some stories, but also get into their personal philosophies about leadership, uh, how they got to that point, the path that they took. And, you know, and, and that was that. And, and so when I pitched that to a publisher and my agent, to your point, he's like, it'll be much easier if, if you have a list of coaches, high profile coaches that have already agreed to do this. And so mm -hmm. that that was probably the most nerve wracking part. And <laughs> I started with a coach named Mike Babcock, who at the time was the Detroit Red Wings coach, moved since to the Toronto Maple Leafs, Hockey Canada, Olympian, uh, Olympic coach, multiple gold medal winner. At, at that moment, he was the biggest coach in hockey. And I'm like, if I can convince Mike to do it, I'm just going to drop that into every request with the other coaches. <laughs> and Mike was very gracious. And, you know, he debated. He, I remember at one point he pulls out a list. He's like, OK, these are the coaches that need to be part of this. He's writing down names. We're brainstorming back and forth. And it was really his idea. He said, this can't be a hockey book, Craig. He's like, mm. if you want to really resonate, not only with coaches, but with a market, it, it's too niche if you just want to write a hockey book. He's like, this has to be a book about leadership. This has to be a book about process. And, I, you know, that really, that advice was smart and and really fit like what I'm passionate about. And once Mike was on board and that was the philosophy, it became a fairly easy pitch to the other coaches. I would just be I just said, hey, Mike Babcock's on board. And then we just got a snowball rolling. I could list three or four others. And then by the end, it was nine or ten. And then it just became actually pulling it off, which was its own thing. When I first became aware of the book, you know, I was one of those who who didn't do my research uh, to the extent I should have. I didn't dig far enough. I didn't look at it beyond it being what it, what appeared on the surface to be a book about hockey. I admitted to you forgetting about, you know, an email exchange we had several years ago where you pitched yeah. the book. I'd forgotten all about that. But then it was the Twitter interaction where I, I dug a little deeper and I went, oh, wait, this this is about more than I thought. Let, let me go back to Craig and see if he 
he's willing to forgive me and let, and come on the show anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. And so I think what's what's ended up happening with this book, Jeff, and I think this is what, and it's very atypical of of writers and books, but it's it's had this really long staying power with with readers because. I think initially it was even sold as that, like it hit the market and hey, let's hear some stories about these great moments in hockey. And then it, what ended up happening, it started getting passed around and I would get emails of people saying, hey, here's chapter by chapter what I learned about leadership and I've never highlighted a book so much, uh, you know, in, in business and this should be taught as a CEO and, you know, it's a leadership book kind of disguised as a as a hockey book. And I think that's a big reason why it's now continues to sell, continue to get checks, thankfully. <laughs> and, you know, I, you know, I've spoken on it and kind of the leadership insights that I've learned from this. And, and yeah, it's I think people appreciate that there's that extra layer there. I love that. And as I've read through each of the nine chapters, I've chosen to pull a lesson from each coach and and, and pose those uh, to Craig. So we'll start with chapter one, which covers a game with uh, Dan Bilsma. Am I saying that correctly? Bilesma. Bilesma. OK. Yeah. Talk about what you learned from him, particularly about goal setting. Yeah, so Dan's a fascinating case because Dan, at the time, he wins a Stanley Cup. Now, we're going back ways. This is 2009 when he wins. And he was, at the beginning of that year, was the coach of the Penguins minor league AHL team. Gets the call up. And they end up going on this magical run and they go and they beat a Detroit Red Wings team that was, you know, one for the ages that everyone just assumed was going to win the Stanley All Cup. Right. And what I loved about learning about Dan and goal setting was two things. One, like the whole time he expected to to win. Like this was a guy who was not even the head coach of the team at the start of the year. But when he's negotiating, uh, there's a story in there and I love this and I, I'm just going to kind of summarize it. But He's negotiating the contract to, to take over midseason. Typically, it's just like, hey, you're going to be the new coach. Congratulations. And you just please sign here. <laughs> and and he goes, he ends up going back and knocking on the GM's door and says, hey, can I get a bonus if, if we win the Stanley Cup? <laughs> and it's like at that point, they're out of the playoffs. It's, you know, in the GM's like kind of like, well, OK, the guts on this guy to ask that. But it was like, sure, you know, and that's just like. And of course, they end up doing it. And that's where his mentality was. It's like he he's a guy who is such a positive thinker and sets such high goals, even in moments where it seems like it's completely unrealistic. Mm. And there was another story his brother shared. And I think this is I don't know how much of this is, was developed or just their personalities as a family. But, you know, the, it was kind of the classic of, of a bunch of brothers growing up together, playing sports together competitively. And he said, uh, one of his brothers said, you know, when he got the job in Pittsburgh, they bought two cigars and one was to celebrate him being hired. And the second one they would have after he won the Stanley Cup. And again, this is a guy that had never had been a head coach before, just gets called up. And, you know, they smoked that second cigar after they win the cup <laughs> that spring. And and so I just it, to me, it was like, OK, I, I love that confidence that Dan has. I, and, you know, seems to always have and kind of been ingrained in him as a kid. And then the, the other thing that Dan was really good in talking about, he was the U.S. Olympic coach during the Sochi Olympics in Russia for the U.S. hockey team. Mm. And when I went to his house, we did this interview and sat and watched that game against the Red Wings at his home in Pittsburgh at the time. He, he walks and goes down to the basement. And he comes back up with this binder. And it was the binder he had given to all the Olympic players. Within it, it was like here, it had all these words in the, on the front. It was like, here's our clear identity 
of what we are going to be as a team. Mm. And it's like, okay, we're going to go in. Now, they didn't win the gold. But, you know, at the time, it's like, we're going to go in. We're going to win gold. So there's that high high expectation. But it's all going to flow within this, these very, this very clear identity of how we're going to play as a team, how we're going to behave. And it was all spelled out, you know, from the start in, in great detail in this binder. And, and you know, mm. we get into that in the in that book, kind of flipping through that binder. And and so it's 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 not just having high goals. It's then kind of going back in reverse engineering it and saying, how do we get there and what traits do we need to have as a team to get there? It says a lot, too, about mindset and just manifesting what you what you want to achieve, right? That's right. That's right. Like, yeah, making it happen. And <laughs> apparently he had always been that way. Like there was a story one of his friends had shared, I think it was with his brother, where it was like they went golfing and he had been golfing awful. And after nine holes, he just kind of pulled him aside. He's like, OK, how many strokes am I behind you? And he's like, I don't know, seven or eight. He's like, and kind of nods and said, OK. The other guy was like, at that point, I knew I was going to lose. Like he was just <laughs> like, this guy was just already figuring out what it was. And, and I think that's just part of being a competitor like Dan Bilesma. Mm-hmm. It was an NHL player, but he was a, you know, a fourth line guy. And this is, we're not talking about Wayne Gretzky here. This is a guy that had to fight for every minute of ice time he got mm-hmm. and probably maximize his career more than anybody based on his talent level. And, you know, I think that's part of the mentality. And there was another great story with Dan. He's sitting uh, on the bench, I think in, in like the lower levels and basically him and the guy, the player he was sitting next to, they were like, okay, we're, we're not playing in the minor leagues here. You know, what's it going to take? And they both kind of vowed to push each other to do whatever it was going to take to make it to the NHL. And it's just, that mentality of kind of laying out those goals and making sure that your end goal is is high enough. You know, as a young kid growing up in Indianapolis, uh, you know, we didn't have a, an NHL a hockey team. The closest would, would be the Blackhawks, I guess, to where I live. But I didn't follow hockey much. Uh, but I knew who Wayne Gretzky was. But but more importantly, though, I didn't have any uh, hockey player posters in my room. I had Gretzky's wife's poster in my room. <laughs> I think before she was Mrs. Gretzky back. Many many days. I'm sure, I'm sure Wayne would be glad to hear that. <laughs> he got not, not he got to start in Indy, by the way. That's where he, he first started playing professional hockey. Now, what what team was that? Would that have been the the Ice? Now now you're I'm you now you're going to test my knowledge. I'd have to Google that. And now, are you where are you at? Nashville now? Yeah, Nashville. They like I I love going to games in Nashville because that that town is amazing when it comes to that, the Predators. You know, they're, they're a lot of fun. I remember the first time going to a, a Predators game and just being blown away by the presentation. Uh, you know, yeah. not just the game, but the presentation. I thought, is it like this in every town? <laughs> they do it right now. <laughs> Well, in the case of uh, Ron Wilson, Chapter 2, uh, this is the only coach that you met with who you asked to relive a loss. Why Why that decision? Why did you put him in that position? <laughs> yeah. So Ron Wilson, he was the coach of Team USA's Olympic team in 2010 mm-hmm. when the Olympics were in Vancouver. And that was a great team. They ended up losing in overtime in the gold medal game to Canada. And I just thought it would be really good to bookend his perspective with Mike Babcox, who was the opposing coach that night. Mike, of course, wins the gold medal for Canada. Ron wins the silver or loses the silver, however we say that in that case. <laughs> um, and yes, it was a loss, but I, I felt like A, it would be good to compare the two mm. and B, it just would be neat to, to to watch the same game and get the different perspectives. And right. and it, it had been enough time had passed that I felt like the pain, it, it wasn't going to be like a too soon moment for Ron Wilson. And what was really um, neat about that is I don't think he had watched a minute of that game from the moment they lost to when we sat down and watched it together. Mm. 
which was good from a you know perspective of okay this is really cool this guy has never sat and watched this game but it wasn't great from a book writing perspective because I get to his house we were in South Carolina he has a place in Hilton Head and we sit in his living room we put it on in this game this 2010 Olympic gold medal game between the U.S. and Canada is one of the it's the best game I've ever I've ever been to live Mm. it's you know in kind of the hockey history it's just one of the greats and Ron and I sit down and I hit my digital recorder. We're going to get some stories. And we both get so into the game that there's probably a 15 minute stretch where neither of us say anything other than, (laughs) oh man, wow. You know, like, and I'm like, oh, and he's just so intense watching this game for the first time. Mm. And I'm like, it's a cool moment like to do this with a coach that's in, you know, in the moment. But I'm also like, this is going to make for an awful book if we don't start talking. (laughs) And uh, finally, we got we got going. So Mm. that was, you know, he was very gracious about it. And you could still tell he was proud of it. Right. Like this is this that was one of, you know, that American team was kind of an underdog team. They put it together, a bunch of young players that are now have gone on to be big stars. You know, a guy like Patrick Kane with the Chicago Blackhawks was a kid on that team. And afterwards, you know, Ron took me upstairs, showed me some memorabilia he had on his wall, and including stuff from that game. Yes, it was a loss, but I think ultimately Ron is really proud of what that team accomplished. Mm. Well, you mentioned uh, Mike Babcock earlier. I'm curious to hear what you learned from him, Craig, with regard to taking risks. And he seems like a guy, as you write about him, who encourages his players to get outside their comfort zone. Yeah, that was my biggest takeaway with Mike Babcock. He is a guy that is constantly pushing those who work for him and play for him to be in the phrase he likes. And I'm sure you've heard it is being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Mm. Mike is currently he, he was fired this year from Toronto. If you're not a hockey fan, but Mike Babcock was fired midseason. There's there tends to be a strain between him and the players because of this. But I think if you ask anybody in hockey, few coaches get more out of their rosters typically than Mike Babcock. Like this mm-hmm. is a guy that has won Stanley Cup. He's won gold medal, multiple gold medals with Team Canada. A guy known for just pushing and maximizing. And part of that being that willingness to be uncomfortable is taking risks and and not staying in your comfort zone. And I would say, you know, along this process, because I talked to Mike a lot leading into doing this book and reporting it and after. And, you know, I think that really impacted me maybe more than any coach because I am somebody who probably I would say is risk averse. Like I had had a... I would say or have have had a very successful career, but it, it's been a very or until that point was a very linear path where every job I took was a clear promotion. You know, there was no debating it. Um, I, you know, I wasn't I wasn't taking any huge risk career wise. And Mike, you know, had example uh, after example of, you know, to really to accomplish great things, you have to push yourself outside of that. And, you know, even his coaching story, I mean, this is a guy that, you know, wasn't an NHL player. He was fired from his first coaching job as a junior hockey coach in Western Canada or wherever it was. Could have hung it up then and got offered a very secure job in business consulting, you know, making a a good salary. And he's sitting there weighing that. And he says, you know what, I'm going to take another crack at coaching. Like, this is what I want to do. And Jeff, it seemed like every single coach that I talked to in this book had one of at least one of those moments where they'd either been fired or they had a much safer alternative or a safer path in life they could have taken Mm. that they just said, you know what, I'm, I I can't, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to push through this. And ultimately every single one of those coaches won something great. And so I I think that for me was really impactful, especially I was, I was kind of at a point in my life where I was weighing some big decisions. And Mm. I, I think it pushed me certainly to change the path I was on. 
Well, that certainly describes, I think, Bob Hartley, who is our, our next coach, who, as I recall, I think he was the coach who had the steady, well-paying factory job, decided to then uh, follow his passion. And everybody at uh, his work was saying, don't do that. What, what did you learn from him about passion? So he's a great example of that. Bob Hartley famously worked at a windshield factory in his home, you know, in this small town in Canada. And he said, once you get that lunch pail at this uh, windshield factory, that's your lunch pail for the rest of your life. And you're basically, I think he had a union number, whatever the number he was as an employee, like like that, there was value in that. And he uh, he was coaching the local junior team, got offered the job to become the head coach. And it was going to mean quitting this this job at the windshield factory. Every one of his coworkers tried to talk him out of it. And they're like, you know, this this junior hockey team is bankrupt. They're, you know, they, they don't make any money. Money. You're going to, you know, you've got a young family. I think at the time he had at least one young child. And he, he said there was a moment. So he kind of took over as an interim coach. They were coaching in the playoffs. And he said there was they, there was an overtime goal scored for them to win a game that they, he, you know, that they were kind of the underdog. And he's like, from that moment, I got bit by the bug, like mm-hmm. it, the adrenaline, the passion, winning something as a team, doing something bigger than yourself. Right. Like mm-hmm. the, I think there's I think we all strive for that to, to be part of something that's bigger than us. I think all of that in that one moment where that that guy scores the goal completely changed his life. And he went <laughs> in and and resigned from the windshield factory. And one of his great moments was winning a Stanley Cup with the Colorado Avalanche and then bringing it back to that town, bringing it for the factory workers to see. And, mm. and you know, w- w- what a what a cool moment. And he, he was he'd love to share. It. And he still has that mentality, that blue collar. He's you know still coaching. I think he's in Russia right now. Like this is a guy that's just like, I'm going to grind away. And this mm. is what I'd love to do the rest of my life. He's not the kind of guy who would bring the, uh, the trophy back to the factory and like rub it in their faces. Right? No, no. I don't. <laughs> Eat your heart out. Yeah, no. This is a guy that's like, hey, these are hockey, diehard hockey fans in this small Canadian town. And he actually shared a story. He went and took a picture with a Stanley Cup a couple years earlier in Montreal. And, and it just seemed like it was from another world, right? Like here mm. he is standing with this trophy as a, a worker, uh, you know, this a blue collar hard worker. And then to then bring it back to that town and do the same thing and ha- have people take pictures with it, mm. you know, was, was unbelievable. One of my favorite authors is Liz Weissman. She's written a couple mm. of books. One's called um, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. And her more recent book is called Rookie Smarts. And I'm reminded of, of Todd McClellan and his staff. Uh, how can not knowing what you're doing, a la Todd and, and his yeah. staff at times, actually be an advantage? That's it's it's a great question. Again, this this kind of goes to show how the world is is different, especially in the hockey world. He was a player, and it, I think he had a real serious knee injury or some injury where he just couldn't keep playing anymore. Goes home, and I, I think he was teaching, just you know, was was doing whatever to to kind of pay the bills. There was an ad, a classified ad in the local newspaper saying, "Hey, our junior hockey team needs a coach." Which now that would never like, <laughs> a, you know, a job like that would be a high profile opening, and they would scour the world with the best to find the best coach. So Todd just calls and says, yeah, I'm interested and ends up getting this job through a classified ad and had never coached at all. Mm. A young staff that were in their early 20s and typically coaches, when you think of a hockey coach or any professional coach, it's it's guys that are in their 40s or 50s. Typically, they're older, right? And they, they played a long career and then they've coached a long time. And in this case, it was somebody who's 
career was cut short. They're in their 20s. He said, you know, one of the lines he had to draw, he was, you know, so close in age to the players. Like they had to they realize <laughs> early on, okay, we can't like go out partying with the players. Like there had to be these lines of demarcation. And Todd, right. like they were doing everything from scratch and learning and having fun. And he said that it was the most fun he's ever had <laughs> as a coach because you don't know what you're doing. So you're making mistakes. But one of the things I would say Todd was really smart about doing as he grew up was identifying mentors and finding people that were in places that he wanted to go, reaching out to them and, and working with them. And, you know, he, he did that a couple of times. And he tells some great stories and, and the lessons he's he learned. And and one of the, the best lessons he said he learned from one of his mentors from the Minnesota Wild when he was in that organization was to be patient in his path and in, in climbing the ladder. Because he was a guy who clearly, if he's coaching at 20 and, and learning and making these mistakes, was super ambitious, mm. but also was really good. At what he did. And it, that became apparent in hockey circles pretty quickly with Todd. And he got advice from a guy named Doug Riseborough, uh, who was the GM of the Minnesota Wild at the time. And it's just like, you know, be smart about taking your next job um, because he, he's this rising star. You're going to get lots of opportunities. Make sure it is the right fit. I think especially when you're in the coaching profession, that's such good advice because there may be a job that opens and you're like, boy, I've always wanted to be an NHL coach or I've always wanted to be whatever level it is that's above you. And it could be a horrible situation. And I, I thought that was interesting that he's like, OK, let's let me be choosy about the jobs I take, even as a young up and coming coach. And because he was getting really good advice and relying on people that had been there before. You know, sometimes certain personalities on a team, for better or worse, can outshine others. What did you learn about uh, the importance of putting the good of the team over the individual from, in particular, Mike Sullivan? Oh, yeah. Yes. So Mike Sullivan is, is currently the Penguins coach. And I think what I learned with that, a couple of things. Mike's path to the NHL was interesting because he was a guy that was always, and this is kind of an aside, but always pegged as an assistant coach and always was an assistant coach and another coach, John Tortorella staff. And what I admire about Mike is at some point in his life, in his career path, he recognized that. He's like, I'm being pigeonholed as an assistant mm. and as a guy who is a number two to John Tortorella. And when I think back to those times, it, it was it was obvious. But now, like he is so established, I would say Mike may be the best coach right now in in hockey. And he took a step back, left the NHL, took an AHL job, and reestablished himself as his own person as a head coach in the AHL, and then gets promoted to the Penguins wins a couple Stanley Cups and the rest is history. And I think what he was able to do, and you talk about kind of the team versus individuals, that team that he took over was loaded with some big personalities, mm -hmm. Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, Phil Kessel. Like these are some, in the hockey, hockey circles, these are superstars. And not only that, like they have guys that want to play a certain way. And one of Mike's biggest accomplishments was like, okay, convincing all of these guys, A, go out and have fun. Take, you know, he took the pressure off of them. There was always a lot of pressure on those players. And he was able to remove that and say, hey, let's go out and just have fun with this. But B, we're going to put all of our egos aside and try to push together as a team. And I, I think that's pretty remarkable. As I read what you wrote about John Tortorella, speaking of him, yeah, um, I'm reminded of uh, Pat Lincioni's book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, one of those being the fear of, of conflict. What about John's view of conflict? What can other leaders learn, in your view, Craig, from, from how he approached conflict? Yeah, so I want to be delicate here because I think there would be people that might not always agree with John's approach. Mm. Um, he is, um, I think sometimes he invents conflict. That may not be there or he'll like he'll just like I think he 
he thinks and and he talks about that like that it's it's a positive like it, he'll never let anything fester with his group so mm-hmm. everything is out front the second it, it comes up uh, um and the other thing he'll do and again this is uh, you know I think as leaders, it's it's this is debatable, but he calls players out in front of the whole group consistently. Mm. So it's it's what that accomplishes is we're all in this together. You know, superstar player is getting berated right now for for failing to back check or whatever, just like fourth line player is. And mm. what this this ends up, you know, these are all big egos, and they're that you know players will talk about screaming matches back and forth. Some coaches will pull a guy aside in private and hey, you got to get going here. Here's what you're doing wrong. John is like, we're going to use this conflict and we're going to use it as a teaching moment. And it's going to be out front of everybody. And they're going to see I treat everybody the same. And he gets away with it, I think, because ultimately his players believe that it's not about him. It's not ego driven. They they believe that he is trying to make the team better. And so the second these players, if they thought it was about him and, and just trying to prove a point or make a name for himself, I think that he would lose the team. Mm. But John has has done such a good job convincing his players through the year. All he cares about is winning. That's it. And he's going to push these players. He's going to generate conflict at times, but he's doing it in a way that that brings out the best of players. And and I there was an exchange in the book where I talked to a player where I'm like, boy, I wouldn't respond to that as a person. <laughs> I, you know, if somebody was, you know, was yelling at me in front of the group, I, I think I would, you know, I, I would shut down. I would shut down. Absolutely. And I think John would, wouldn't want me on his team for that reason. <laughs> so he like, ultimately, like what ends up happening is you have a team that pushes back and players in, in they, they embrace this. And these teams become really like characteristics of a John Tortorella coach team is this team that just doesn't put up with anything and they push through things and they're mm. gritty and they battle and they don't back down from anybody. Like that becomes part of their identity and they're miserable to play against and they win. And mm. so, you know, is it the best way to treat humans? I, I don't know. <laughs> like we <laughs> you and I can discuss that. And I think John's talked about that. And what I like about John is he's so honest, especially mm. in this, you know, when, when I get, I got him on a summer day when he just had the time to talk, he's not always like that with the media. I would say sometimes he can mm. be very short, but he was, he's so honest and he's like, I've made mistakes. There's no politics with him. He will always do what he feels is, is best to win. And it mm. sometimes I think, you know, you have to like think about the players and, and, and he just said, look, I've made mistakes and he kind of highlighted a couple of them in the book but I, I think why he's successful is everybody knows it comes from a place of trying to maximize the group mm, it's a motivator mm-hmm. well i had a 50 50 shot at getting uh Bilesma's name right am i still saying it wrong or am i st- <laughs> no you got it no, you're there you're there I probably have a 50 50 shot at this next one and i'm worried i'll get it wrong so i'll just say how do you pronounce joel's last name joel quenville quenville i see i would have thrown an extra syllable in there i would have gotten it wrong uh, so he really seemed to be the kind of coach that could really get the, the most out of his group uh, winning, I think, mm-hmm. uh, three championships in, in five years. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it about him that his teams appreciated most, you think? Yeah. So players love playing for Joel. And I think this gets at in sports um, how there's more than one way to succeed. Right. Mm-hmm. And leadership styles, because. It's interesting that you asked that on the heels of a John Tortorello question. I think you, two, <laughs> these are two coaches that couldn't be more different. Mm. Um, and, you know, guides love Joel. He goes to bat for them. And I always try to find an example of this, just rather than saying that. One of the examples I, a player shared with me, back in the day, NHL players had a lot of bonuses in their contract. <laughs> and, and it doesn't happen now because the salary cap. But when he was a coach of the St. Louis Blues, at the end of the year, he would go around and say, hey, you know, who's close to hitting their bonuses? And, you know, let's make sure it happens. 
And one of the players said he had a average ice time bonus. So like if he averaged more than 10 minutes of ice time per game, he got a hundred thousand dollars, let's say, or whatever it was. And he was at nine minutes and 50 seconds or whatever. <laughs> and this is a guy, obviously if he's playing that m- amount and you know, you, as a hockey fan, you would know like he's not a star player. This is a, you know, a third or fourth line player. Mm. And Joel, like towards the end of the season, just he played him a ton, like last game of the year, plays him 20 minutes, whatever it took, right, <laughs> to get to that bonus. Mm-hmm. And and obviously he's not going to get in the way of winning or whatever. But you do that for a player who's at the bottom of your lineup. That guy now still, this is probably 20 years later, would run through a wall for Joel. He's mm-hmm. like the guy that would take the time to find that detail about my contract and then help me achieve that means so much to me. And, you know, another story that was shared by a player named Adam Burrish during the Blackhawks Cup runs. Adam, again, this is a fourth line player who wasn't going to play much during these playoffs. And Joel, you know, I don't know if this is consciously or not, but, you know, wanted him to feel a part of the team. Mm. And so started asking Adam, like, I need you, you're in charge of scouting reports and you're in charge of getting in front of the team and in a fun way, you know, sharing about, you know, details that you find out about the next team. Mm-hmm. And, and by the end, you know, Adam was, you know, pulling out a guitar and singing songs <laughs> about the teams they were playing and it became, you know, this team building thing. <laughs> but, you know, when they win the Stanley Cup, Adam Burrish, who was playing five minutes a night or whatever it was, is raising the cup and he's feeling that, you know, I had just as much a say in this cup as, mm-hmm. as Jonathan Taves or Patrick. Kane, some of the stars in the team. And again, that's that's just great leadership. That's making everybody on the team feel like they have an important role, even if you're kind of carving out for, for yourself. And, and I think that's why guys love playing for Joel. Mm, great stories. Talk about the process or the concept, I should say, of the process being more important than the result, a la uh, Ken Hitchcock. Yeah. So Ken Hitchcock, he's known for kind of systems Mm. and his team's playing almost robotic at times. And you hear now this has become a thing in sports. So if you're a sports fan, you hear, you know, a process a lot now. Mm. And I don't know if this was always the case. It used to just be like, if you win, it doesn't matter how you get there. And I think Ken was one of the first coaches that said, look, we can win a game three to one. But if we didn't play within the structure of our team, if we didn't play the right way, then we were better off losing that game. Mm. And so he really instilled that on his teams. And what I found most interesting about Ken and his leadership was he said he could identify and, and, you know, this is a guy that's coached decades. And he said there's very few teams that get, get to this point. But when it would get to the point where the players are the ones that are pushing the process and the players are the ones that are taking this on where he doesn't have to be the one yelling because mm. he's a yeller. Or he was especially early in his career. But when he could just sit back and he would see his captain or his veteran players pulling guys aside and saying, hey, you have to be in the spot or you have to do this. That's when he knew he had a special team. Mm. And and that really resonated with me. Like if you're part of a group, if it's always coming from the top down, you're probably not going to achieve as much as you can or you want to as a group. And he said there were special times where, where he would just see the players are just policing themselves and doing the hard things and coming in for extra practice all this on their own volition and as a coach when you see that you know you've got something special Mm. well the last coach i want to ask you about i think i can pronounce this name accurately we'll see uh is claude julian am i saying that right okay uh what did you learn from him about humility in leadership Mm. yeah what i love about claude and humility I, i i think there's a 
certain amount of ego that you have to have as a person to be a head coach in the NHL mm-hmm. or for the most part, you know, we talked about Mike Babcock earlier, anybody in hockey, you know, they'll, they'll tell you, this is a guy that's got an ego and he's, it's kind of his way. And that's how it has to be. And Claude, one of the things he said, when I sat down with them, he said, if I could do this job and nobody knew who I was, you know, if I, I wasn't on TV and I could just disappear, do it, coach the players and go home and, you know, be with my family, I would take that trade in a second. Mm-hmm. Like he just, he just, loves coaching and he loves working with the players. He's not doing it by ego. He's not doing it for his own glory. In fact, he probably hates all that stuff that comes with it and and would would take, you know, remove that in a heartbeat. And I know he would. So that that humility to me, I think that really resonates with his teams because, you know, when especially you're dealing with millionaire athletes, you're dealing with these guys that have egos of their own. And so when a guy like Claude Julian, who you know is humble and, you know, in his actions and in his words, is asking you to do something, you do it, right? Because you, you this, this is a guy that's so smart, so experienced that he's asking you to do it because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And one of the lessons that Claude said he had to learn because of this was as maturing as a coach was you know, learn when to push a little harder, right? Like I think somebody who is is humble by, by nature, I think he gave in a little to the players too much early on in his career. And, and I think it takes a while to find that sweet spot as a humble leader mm. to push. And I think at his peak, you know, and he's now coaching the Montreal Canadiens, like that's, I think he has found that sweet spot. Mm. Well, in the time we have left, I want to move to some questions not directly related to your book by asking first, what's a book or two you've encountered over the course of your career that's left a lasting impression on you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm constantly reading more so now I'd say than ever. Um, mm. And I would say, so a couple of things, a couple of books I want to highlight. One would be, and I'm sure people have brought this book up, but The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. That book I think as a writer, if what we do can be so hard because I don't know if we're all insecure or what, but you can constantly find excuses not to do things. Mm. And that book is is so motivating to me. It's like sit down and be creative, <laughs> and 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 be real about who you are, and and you know don't do things for other people. Like it's really like to, about creativity and pushing yourself and getting past those voices in in your head that that tell you you know this is going to fail or whatever it is. And it's one of those things. If I find I I'm not moving forward with a, a project or something, you know, I, I'm just feel like I'm stuck. I'll just, it's sitting next to my bed and I'll just open it up mm-hmm. and read chapters just randomly and find that it, it usually, I find, <laughs> find the right theme there. Mm-hmm. And and I would say right now, Jeff, what I'm reading, I've, I just finished reading The Underground Railroad mm-hmm. by Colson Whitehead and The Nickel Boys mm-hmm. I read earlier this year. And I just think right now, uh, you know, with all the social justice conversations that we're having as yeah. a country, to me, those you, you talk about books personally impacting you. Having that perspective from Colson in, in those books is something that I, I felt like I just needed right now, and and mm. hadn't been exposed to kind of growing up. And that's an area I want I need to learn and understand better, especially as you know someone managing a staff. And so those because they're fresh in my mind because I've read them recently have really impacted me. You, you've just added to my reading list. Thank you. Oh, they're so good. <laughs> Well, when it comes to reading and particularly, Craig, reading to learn and develop, what do you do to help retain what you read or ensure that you actually implement something that, <laughs> that you want to implement? Yeah, that's I'm not great at it. So I'm, 
my, I don't think this is a conscious thought, but I just read a lot and I'm, I'm hoping that intrinsically I'm kind of implementing it. I find what I'm most successful when I do things right away. So mm. I th- it might've been off of your podcast, the 12 week year, that book. Yeah. I, I bought it after listening to your pod and it was one of those things I sat down with my wife because it, that's very structural. It's like, here's how you need to do it and re- reverse engineer your goals. And I find if I do it right away, it, it makes an impact. And then I end up maybe not using everything, but I have bits and pieces that I incorporate to my life. Um, really good advice that I got from Ryan Holiday, who is the author of Obstacles Away and a few other great books that I'm, I'm a fan of. Ryan said one of the things he does, he's got a stack of index cards by him constantly, and he's taking notes from what he's reading and putting them on an index cards. And I admire that and I really want to do it. I just have to, I, I have to get better at that. I'm, I'm doing kind of the electronic equivalent of that right now, but I'm the kind of person who has, you know, an analog planner and, and, and got out of the digital world in that realm a long time ago. And I'm, I'm starting yeah. to see the advantage of having a, a card file system like Ryan does versus what I'm doing right now. <laughs> yeah. So I write a lot down. So I have a journal that basically if I'm taking notes while I'm, if I'm watching a speaker or something or whatever it is I'm doing, I'll sit and take notes in this journal. And I've actually been trying to just document life in, you know, during COVID and and some of that. So I'll do that. And I'm the same way. I have a planner that, you know, I go back and reference constantly. I sit down in the morning. That's the first thing I do is kind of take a deep breath, have a cup of coffee, and I just start writing what I have to get accomplished that day. Um, so yeah, I think doing it manually really helps me. And, uh, you know, I, I guess everyone has different theories on that. And it sounds like, uh, to go back to what you were saying earlier about reading and reading to learn and, 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 and your reading, it sounds like as much as anything for, for how it impacts your thinking. Yes. I, I just want to make sure that I'm just, I don't surround myself with people who think the same way as I do or mm. whatever. And, and I think it's so easy right now for us just to kind of get into our silos and, and just be like constantly supported by people thinking the same way. And so I, mm. I just want to just... <sighs> analyze other ways and and mm-hmm. see if, if people are doing things better than I am and, and what can I learn from them and maybe maybe I read a book on habits or, or whatever it is and maybe it's only one thing that the thought of habit stacking and, and doing you know mm-hmm. every day I'm having a cup of coffee okay after you have the coffee do this like stack a habit on a habit yeah and like just like I could read 400 pages about habits and that may be the only thing I pull from it mm-hmm. but like that I think that's valuable yeah, I think James Clear talks about that in Atomic Habits. That's what it was. It was Atomic Habits. That's exactly right. If you uh, Not to throw books at you, but if you haven't read Tiny Habits by B.J. Oh. Fogg, I highly recommend that. I am writing that down. Very good book. Well, the world of sports, uh, along with a lot of other worlds, have been turned upside down these last few months. And so I ask this uh, cautiously. Yeah. What's ahead for you and your team that you're excited about and able to share? As you look to the rest of, of 2020, what, what do you look forward to? Yeah, well, as somebody who operates in sports media, I'm <laughs> looking forward to hopefully having games of some sort returned to for us to write about. No, so, I, you know, The Athletic, we, we're actually, as a company, we're really excited about uh, some updates. I can't share them yet that we're doing to our app and kind mm-hmm. of some evolution um, just from the product side to, to make our subscribers have a better interaction, like just ways to be able to reach people kind of more personally and interact with them. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that we're really excited about. And, you know, one of the things I, I've got a podcast with The Athletic called The Full 60 and 
just having conversations like this, Jeff, where I think in the sports world, we get caught up a lot in, you know, hey, who won the game last night and what's happening tomorrow? And what I love about the full 60 is it's an hour to sit down with somebody who has accomplished something in hockey and and talk about how they got there. And I like I'm excited. I've got a great producer that consistently finds interesting people in the, in the world to share those thoughts. And so I, you know, I would encourage anybody that's into podcasts, especially into hockey, but into learning from accomplished people to, to check out the full 60. I literally just subscribed at this very moment. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. Well, the book again is called uh, Behind the Bench, Inside the Minds of Hockey's Greatest Coaches. I learned a ton about leadership. I recommend you dive into it for the same reason. His name is Craig Custance. Craig, thank you for being a part of the Read to Lead podcast. Appreciate having you here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It was fun. For more on Craig, to connect with Craig online or to dig into some of those books he referenced, just visit the page I've created just for this episode on my website. You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 330 for episode 330. Remember, if I can help you with your next in-person or virtual event, I hope you'll reach out to me directly, Jeff, at readtoleadpodcast.com. That's also the address you can write if you have questions, comments, suggestions, or feedback for the podcast. Again, that's Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. In a couple of weeks, I look forward to bringing you my chat with Michael Goldberg, author of the book Knockout Networking. And next week, we'll get a visit from former vice president of Disney's Magic Kingdom, Dan Cockrell, as we dive into his book, How's the Culture in Your Kingdom? That and more ahead right here on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Thank you.